So grab a Bible, if you have one close by, open it to Genesis chapter 2, just a couple of pages into your Bible. If you don't have one with you, we're going to have the words on the screen, but I'd really encourage you to look at it with us. We're going to study several verses in Genesis 2 today. So even if you need to grab your phone, that's okay. Um, Pro tip is maybe just put it on airplane mode and open up the Bible app or maybe search it on Google, Genesis chapter 2, and then turn it on airplane mode. That way you won't be distracted throughout. Uh, but I would encourage you, have God's Word in front of you. It is the, the only authority we have for life and practice of our faith. And so we want to pay attention to what it has to say today. Chapter 2, verse 18, is the beginning of the final scene of the Bible's account of creation, the way things began. Now, most people read Genesis like they would read a history book uh, or a science book, uh, but Genesis isn't really either of those. It does give us some helpful insight, but it's not a textbook at all. And I think there's probably some people who are maybe like elementary students coming off spring break, or excuse me, fall break. Gosh, I'm way ahead. Elementary kids coming off fall break. You're like, please, no more textbooks. I've had enough. I'm ready. I'm not even ready to go back to school tomorrow. College students, you already had fall break. You're like trucking towards finals. Uh, and I hope you realize that finals are just around the corner. But the Bible is not a textbook for us simply to study for answers. It's so much more than that. In fact, Genesis is the beginning of the biggest and the truest story ever told. It's the story of God and his relationship with the world and especially the people that he created. So as our English teachers and professors know, uh, a good introduction, as Genesis is, also points you to the conclusion. Am I right? A good introduction always points you to the conclusion. Well, the first two chapters of Genesis, which describe our beginnings, are closely related, if not in many ways, a mirror image of then the last two chapters of our entire Bible in the book of Revelation, which describes our eternal destiny. The creation story in the beginning of Genesis is as much a picture of our future as it is the story of our past. So Genesis 2 describes in vivid detail, like I said last week, in living color, like a slow motion zoom in movie that was shot during chapter 1's day 6 of creation. It shows us life with God the way he designed it. It also shows us a preview of what would subsequently be lost when humans rebelled against God, which we're going to get to that next week. But then it's also a foreshadowing of the life we regain through faith in Jesus Christ. Now only in part, but fully when God completes his work of redemption, making the heavens and the earth new again. This is the story of the Bible from beginning to end. That what God made, we lost when humans rebelled against him. Yet through Christ, all things can be redeemed and restored. And God's plan at the end is to remake the heavens and the earth so that we can live with him eternally the way he designed us to do. So this is the story. Now, one of the hardest parts about being human, and if this is where you go, I'm going to give you permission to give an amen. One of the hardest parts about being a human today is relationships. No amens? Yeah. <laughs> 
you were like worried about what the person next to you was going to think if you gave an amen to that one. Because you're going, oh yeah, they're tough. Uh, but I don't want them to know it just yet because I'm not sure what that lunch conversation is going to be like. Yeah, relationships are tough. They're hard because we live in a fallen world, a world where ch- humans chose sin, chose to rebel against God. And God then had to remove his blessing and replace it with the curse of sin, which has affected all of us in innumerable ways. But the good news is the way God intended relationships to be, which, yes, he intended us to have relationships before sin entered the picture, we will once again have the opportunity to experience in full without the heartache and with all the benefits in eternal life because of Jesus Christ. Genesis 2, the final scene, is all about relationships, the way God designed it. So we're going to look at that together. Can you imagine a world without loneliness? I read the report from the U.S. Surgeon General's office from 2023 uh, that loneliness has been named an epidemic, uh, not pandemic, epidemic, that one in every two Americans is affected by loneliness. That means the person sitting next to you, even though they might be in proximity to you, could be dealing and battling with loneliness. Can you imagine a world without breakups, a world without divorce? Can you imagine a world without gossip or grudges? Can you imagine a world without inequality or abuse? This is the world God created. It's also the world humans lost, but the world that we can regain through Christ. Look with me in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. I'll read it aloud. You just follow along either in your device or in your Bible or on the screen, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Genesis chapter 2 the final scene of creation, the climax of day six, the creation of mankind, not only man, but then also woman. We see in zoom in slow-mo how God gave a blueprint for relationships with one another. God gave a blueprint for relationship to one another. This is what these first several verses are about. This is where God, who exists in vertical relationship with humanity, leads us to look horizontally. That yes, this is good, but also there's good here. There's good to be recognized and to be enjoyed. 
Just the name of God himself here in this passage, you know how it changed from chapter 1 where the name of God was Elohim, where God's all-powerful, sovereign, supreme, he's over all, that he's the creator who speaks creation into existence, that he's transcendent. Well, they add a word in chapter 2 to his name. He's not, no longer just Elohim, he's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, meaning a personal and present God who is eminent, who is with us, who cares. And so you see how the God who is transcendent, existing in vertical relationship, also is a God who cares about our lives. And in an expression of care and love for us, he grants us the gift of relationship. As hard as it may be, today it truly is a gift to be in relationship. And so he leads us to look horizontally. Now, if you've been tracking with us in our study of Genesis from chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 18 probably sticks out to you like a sore thumb. Did you recognize it? Did you see it? It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Now, ten times in chapter 1, God speaks and creation comes to exist. God says and things happen. Seven times in chapter one, it's the refrain repeated over and over that what God creates is good, culminating at the end of day six in very good indeed, right? And so in verse 18, it sticks out to us and we go, something is happening here because all of a sudden God speaks and what he says is that something is not good. What gives? Did God make a mistake? By no means. Uh, Remember chapter 2, like we said, it's the slow-mo zoom in, right? It's it's like a video based on the screenshot of day 6. So as chapter 1, verse 27, in the description of day 6 of creation, confirms, for creation of mankind is the image of God to be complete, both genders were necessary. So in this slow-mo zoom in, all we have so far is man. And it is not good for man to be alone. So God didn't make a mistake. He was just finishing what he started. God was being both generous and gracious with creation so that at the end of day six, he could declare not just that it's good, but that it is very good indeed. So Adam's life in Eden, the paradise garden of delight, it would be stunted both in purpose and in enjoyment, without the provision of a partner. Not just any partner, a specific kind of partner. It says, a helper corresponding to him. Now, having read verse 15, you might think, if you back up and look at that, that to carry out Adam's instruction to work and to watch over the garden, that he would need a subordinate, that Adam's the boss, right? He's the first one there. And and that God's going to give him a a helper to come alongside as a subordinate, as an inferior, someone to delegate to, someone that he can take command over to really get things done, right? As they say in the business world, that Adam could work on the business, not in the business. That's probably what you might be thinking about when you see the word helper. But God had something so much more valuable in mind. God had something so much more godlike in mind than that. A helper, yes, 
but not the kind of helper you might be thinking. I was a kid, uh, traveled with my dad on some business trips occasionally. You know what happened 100% of the time? We would go see these clients of my dad's and I would walk in as a child and they would go, you brought your little helper with you today, didn't you? And it was just like, first it was like, oh yeah, that's funny. And then after the hundredth time, you're going, okay, this is ridiculous. And then I would go sit and, you know, do something, read a book or play a game while they did the real business. That is not what God intends when he says he wants and envisions a helper for man. Instead, the word helper in verse 18, it's the same Hebrew word the Old Testament uses in several other places to describe God himself as the helper of his people. So for God to create a helper, it wasn't to create anything less than in any way. Instead, God envisioned an ally for man, a a true partner, a support who could share the load, who could work together, who could enjoy fully with one another the blessings of God in the garden of delight. This is what God had in mind. And not by man's choice, but by God's design, a partner to share in the enjoyment of God's provision and purpose. The phrase in verse 18 that says corresponding to him points to this. Uh, Man didn't just need a partner, he needed a counterpart. God envisioned a complement to Adam. It could also be translated opposite. So you have Adam, now we need his opposite for them to make a complete picture of the image of God. This is where we get the idea of opposite sex. In fact, this deepens our understanding of chapter 1, verse 27, in teaching that humans are physically gendered, both male and female, and only male and female. And so chapter 2 deepens our understanding of that. It's also the foundation for the biblical belief under the umbrella of image of God from chapter 1 that men and women are made with equal dignity and essence, yet with distinct gender roles. That There are some things man is designed to do that the woman becomes an ally with him in. There are some things a woman is designed to do that a man becomes an ally with her in. So equal in dignity and essence, yet distinct in gender roles, which in no way diminishes either's value. Both are equally valuable and dignified before God because he created them in his image. So we see equality in gender. Equality is further developed in verse 22 as God takes Adam's rib to create woman. Did you see where he took it from? Well, in your Bible, if you're tracking in the same version that we're looking at, you just saw that he took his rib. Well, that could also be translated that God took from Adam's side, which in the ancient world equaled sameness. It wasn't that he took from Adam's head so the woman would stand as his superior. It wasn't that he took from Adam's foot so that the woman would sit as his inferior, but he took from Adam's side so that the woman would be same with Adam, equal with Adam, next to him, side by side. This is foundational stuff. We got to keep in mind, though, that humans are not the star of this show. I mean, this has a lot of meaning for our lives, but 
we can't miss the fact that both man and woman are equally and completely dependent on God. Look at verses 18 through 21. Did you pick up on this theme? Let me just repeat a few of these phrases. First, God said, I will make. Then God formed. Then God caused. Then God took. Then God made. Then God brought to the man. Do you see how none of this is possible without the powerful work of God? That it's his design and his plan for our goodness and joy and purpose in life that we would have relationships with one another to spur each other on, to be allies with one another, to support one another through life. God designed it this way. It's a reflection of who he is. We talked about this in chapter 1, where in chapter 1, verse 26, he says that we should create. (laughs) Let us create man in our image, meaning that God has a plurality. We talked about how God exists in community and then creates humans to enjoy community as well. This is who God is, and we are completely dependent on him. This picture of the very good indeed creation is the blessed life that God intends for us all. In God's blueprint for human relationships, we recognize our dependence on God alone for value and dignity, both male and female, right? We recognize that our service is to God as his image bearers, that we represent him to the entire world, just like a statue would represent a king in the ends of the king's kingdom. To the far corners, we stand as God's representatives to the far corners of the earth. We recognize in God's blueprint for human relationships that our wiring is to be allies with one another. That we have a distinctiveness as both male and female. We recognize our need for human relationships that without relationships, we cannot enjoy God's purpose or provision to the fullest. We need each other. We've got to have it. It doesn't take much imagination to see how far we've fallen from this created order. I mean, you think about terms like value, terms like human dignity, terms like gender roles or gender identity. All of these are questioned far more than they are celebrated in our world, are they not? This is a direct a direct result of human rebellion and the curse that God wants to make right. You can even see it not just in how we talk about how we exist, but in the way we live, that as people wired to be allies, we've even twisted that and distorted that so that we become people who make alliances with people against other people. Uh, You can see this in a global scale today with the wars that are going on, but you can even see it all the way down to something as silly as a reality TV show. Do you remember this was how like the the first reality TV show, Survivor? Well, it's not the first. Uh, Some of you millennials are like, remember MTV in the 90s? That was reality TV, right? Uh, But Survivor changed the whole game on reality TV. If you don't remember that, this is what happened. They put people on an island, and it was sort of like the last one there won the money. Well, it only comes down to one person, so people started sitting next to someone at the campfire going, hey, I don't really like that guy over there, but 
I think you can help me out. I think I can help you out. So let's make an alliance. Let's form an alliance together. We're going to get rid of him. Well, then what happens when it's only the two of them left? (laughs) We've twisted our wiring to be allies, to be against each other. Think about your work relationships. Think about your family. Think about the number of words you use to build up someone versus the number of words you use to tear down someone. It's kind of convicting, right? We've twisted that natural and good desire. All because of human sin. Genesis 2 also, not only do we have to not use very much imagination to see how things have been twisted and tainted, but Genesis 2 also spurs our imagination toward the kind of relationships that we could enjoy again through redemption from Jesus Christ. Think about this. The Christian life is live, lived with and for people. That is a descriptor of who we are, not just because Jesus was a good guy, but because God created us and wired us to be allies with one another, to need each other, to lean on each other, to support one another, to share in not only the work of earth, but also the joy of life in his creation. We were created for this way. Yeah, our relationships are imperfect and broken, Then the question becomes, well, how do we apply this? Well, ask yourself the question, how can I grow in the way I value and dignify others in my life? What words can I use today to build up the people closest to me rather than tear them down? When I'm surprised and hurt, how will I respond? Will I turn against them or will I choose the godly way to be an ally and to come closer to that person? How can I align myself with others to support them, to share life with them, to walk through the heartaches of life, but also to celebrate the joys of life? We're wired and we need community, not because Jesus called us to it, which he did, not because the disciples practiced it, which they did, but because God wired us for it. He created us for it. And then one day, because of redemption in Jesus, we will experience it again to the fullness thereof without any of the heartache. This is our future, as much as it is the story of our past. And so Christians, the call is because of Jesus to engage in the kind of relationships that God created us for. So the most thriving ministry at Moberly Baptist Church ought to be, because of Genesis 2, our connect connect group ministry. It's the place where people gather around God's word and they pray together and they get to know one another. It's more than just sitting in a row next to each other. It's sitting in a circle so that you can share life. It's hanging out with each other outside of group. That is what I would say if we applied this to our church today, if based on Genesis chapter 2, ought to be the most thriving ministry in our church because it's how God made us and it's what we need the most. What if your lack of relationship and community isn't a lack of opportunity, but a lack of willingness to become community for someone else? And a lot of us are just kind of sitting around waiting for it to happen to us. When maybe God is calling you to walk into the life he created you for and become community for someone else, then you'll guarantee, you're guaranteed to experience it, right? It's like an old pastor of mine when I was in college said about uh, dating and relationships. He would say, 
that it's not for you to go and find the one as much as God intends for you to become the one for someone else. So we see God in vertical relationship with us, Elohim, all-powerful, supreme, transcendent God is also for us and with us and present and personal and cares about us and the way we experience his creation. And he wired us for one another. Become the one another for someone else. That's the call. Speaking of the one, uh, Scripture also shows us here how God gave a blueprint not just for our relationship to other humans, but a blueprint for our relationship to Him. In fact, this is where things get really cool because God actually provided and sanctified a human relationship that's going to signify for all eternity the kind of love and relationship that God longs for with us. And so instead of our vertical relationship being led to look horizontal, now God is taking one of our horizontal relationships and he's using it as a way to remind us to look back vertical, to go, okay, we have this relationship that's special and sanctified, it ought to be a picture to us of what love God has for us. Did you ever play the game Pictionary? Uh, have you played that? If anybody played it this weekend, raise your hand. No? Okay. Pictionary. You know the game, you get a whiteboard or, a, uh, or an easel and you got a team and you get a word and you have to draw that word. Okay, you're drawing the word, and I'm thinking like what I would be doing is you can't say the word, so your team's guessing, and I'm drawing everything I can on the board to try to describe this certain word. And then if someone guesses a little bit close, I start circling this word, I start hitting it with my marker, you know. This is what God is doing in Genesis chapter 2 with the idea of covenant marriage. The word covenant is not here. But it's like God is drawing every element and aspect of covenant relationship on the board and he's circling it. He's going, look, 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 here it is. This is what I'm trying to say. Do you get it? This is what it looks like. And so this is where he goes in verses 22 through 25 where he talks about marriage as the intended relationship to be a picture of our covenant relationship with God. This is the life God wants with us. So the language of covenant is written all over Genesis 2. Well, the word isn't specifically there, but keep in mind, Genesis 2 was written and first read uh, and heard by the Israelites who were already experiencing severely damaged views of marriage. Things weren't perfect for the Israelites. When they got Genesis, they had gone through hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt. They'd been exposed to the gods of the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the heartache that came from paganism. They had been ripped apart as a nation by people stepping into their culture and marrying them out of their own culture and away from God. They had already experienced all these uh, distortions of God's original ideal, yet God still gave special attention to describe what he intended. What does that tell us? That tells us that God is never going to give up on what marriage was intended to be. I just know that in the room there are all kinds of experiences with marriage. There's a longing for it. Uh, There's a rejection of it. There's hurt from it. Uh, There's heartache, uh, there's abuse, there's manipulation, there's all these distortions 
of the ideal, but God will never say, you know what, that was a bad idea, let's get rid of it because, you know, it's just not working. Instead, by bringing it up in the creation account and giving special attention to it, what God is saying is he will never give up on this ideal of marriage because it is the best picture he's given us in human relationships for the kind of way that he wants to relate to us through covenant love. So what kind of picture does Genesis 2 paint? What do we learn despite our broken experiences, despite our imperfect marriage? What do we learn about the sacred union that God designed for us? Well, the first recorded human words in the Bible are right here. And what are they? Are, are, is, it, is it a commitment? Is it a, uh, is it a declaration? Well, it's kind of more of a celebration. It's a poem. You know, when Genesis 1 broke out in poem, it was because of the creation of man in God's image. Now Genesis 2 breaks out into poetry the man that God created when God introduces woman to the equation and partners them together in a sanctified union. He breaks out into poetry. Look at what verse 23 says, this expression of love. Adam says, This one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. Now, this is covenant language. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. When two people struck a covenant agreement, made vows to one another, they did it over the sacrifice of an animal, one that was literally cut open with blood poured out. But instead of an animal for the sacrificial intermediary as a sign of the covenant relationship between man and woman, Adam himself becomes the intermediary of the covenant with woman. And if you're a Christian, the alarm bells of your Bible ought to be going off because this is the very same thing Jesus did on the cross. When he removed the need for animal sacrifice to appease God because of our sin, and he substituted himself as the sacrificial intermediary whose side was pierced not to remove a rib and make a woman, but to spill out the blood that would pay for our redemption and give us the chance to have eternal life with God through faith. This is our God, and this is how he made us. So Adam is overjoyed to have given of himself in order to have and to hold woman. Uh, Adam's poem of sacrificial commitment grows as he names woman in verse 23. You know, naming in ancient times that we talked about before is uh, signifying authority in relationship. Um, But Adam does something radical here. Something that you sort of have to look a little deeper to, to see, but you have to see. Adam doesn't appear to be acting in superiority or authority because that would counteract what we've already said about equality, right? Here's what happens. Adam, in the same breath that he he names woman, renames himself. The same breath that he names woman, he renames himself. Now, our English is limiting, and this is probably where you raise an eyebrow because we only have one word for man. But in the Hebrew, there were multiple words. And up until this point, all the way through verse 23, the only word ever used to refer to the man God created was the word Adam. In Hebrew, Adam, 
which comes from the word Adama, which means from the earth. Remember how God formed man from the earth? It's a very natural name to be given to him because that's where he came from. Except that Adam doesn't keep this name in his poem. He renames himself. Here he names woman, which is the Hebrew word isha, which is actually maybe better translated wife, followed immediately by referring to himself as ish, which may be better translated husband. So if you read it again, it sounds like this. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called wife, for she was taken from husband. You see the covenant language. It's full of it. So Adam bursts out in this poetic song at at the sight of woman in order to say, not only am I created from the earth, but I'm also created for this person. Which is what marriage says, right? That I recognize that my life is no longer my own, but it's for another. It's why Ephesians would say, to submit to one another, therefore, in chapter 5. So, as Adam's covenant, poetry, declaration, celebration ends, the author of Genesis then picks up with a little commentary in verse 24 and 25. So now Adam has stopped talking. Now the, the writer of Genesis steps in and he says, hey, all you people hearing Genesis for the first time who have seen brokenness in marriage, who already have been exposed to divorce and polygamy uh, and, you know, manipulation and all these other distortions and dysfunctions of marriage, which the Israelites had. And he says to them, this commentary, that culture will always attempt to redefine marriage, but we must hold to God's definition, not as a hammer to drop on our neighbors, but a vision to cast for experiencing the goodness of God in covenant relationship. This is why we hold to God's definition of marriage. So if you look in verse 24 and 25, you'll see these six things that sort of give the framework for God's definition of marriage. The first is we see that marriage is uniquely gendered. And what I mean is that it's repeated that it's man and woman. This is God's design for marriage. A man and a woman, who, by the way, also emanated from a man and a woman because their father and mother are referenced here. We're talking about the first humans. They don't have a father and mother outside of God yet, so this is obviously a commentary to the Israelites who have already experienced brokenness, and it's a reminder to say that Israelites who are faced with cultures that, that you know, point you toward polygamy and having multiple wives, marriage is one man and one wife. One man and one woman. It's also descriptive of exclusive loyalty. Marriage, a trademark of marriage is exclusive loyalty. That a man and woman are supposed to devote their lives to one another. That they leave their parents behind. Not that they ignore their parents, but their loyalty is no longer to their parents first. Certainly the commandments which come in Exodus, honor your father and mother, they they apply to us all the time, right? But when we become married, our loyalty priority changes and becomes exclusive to our spouse. 
Also, we see unbreakable unity. That this couple formed a bond, like super glue together, or like a crochet or a basket that's woven together, that if you tugged on it, it wouldn't come apart. Or as later in the Old Testament would say, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. So we have this unbreakable unity, lives woven together inseparably. We have also a growing intimacy. Uh, We have where the humans become one flesh together in the bond of marriage. This is the idea of cleaving together. So we got leaving parents, we got weaving your lives together, now cleaving to one another or clinging to one another. This is God's ideal and God's definition of marriage, that there's a growing intimacy here. Then we see mutual vulnerability in verse 25. Mutual vulnerability. That the man and woman were naked, or the Hebrew word, naked. Nobody like that one? Okay. That's the one that wasn't in my notes. I probably shouldn't have said it. And this is also where the elementary kids in the room can giggle a little bit. That's okay. Uh, Yeah, they were naked, which was a shock to the Jewish culture. The Israelites reading this account because they're a highly modest culture, and rightly so because they emanated from the fall of Humanity, where in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, they all of a sudden felt shame. They covered themselves, and they continued covering themselves with more and more modesty. And so to see a man and a woman naked together is extremely vulnerable. But that's okay in marriage. And only in marriage, because marriage is also a completely safe and secure place. Marriage is a place of complete safety and security the way God designed it. The humans felt no shame inside marriage. That means there's room to not be perfect and to not be discarded. There's room to care for one another through your imperfections. There's room to call each other out without fear of the other one leaving. In a marriage designed by God, there is complete safety and security. This is God's definition of marriage, which sets the boundaries and the blessings of union with one another, all pointing to the union God desires with us, made possible through Jesus Christ. This is the kind of relationship God wants with us, for every man and woman to be in union with Christ, in exclusive loyalty which Jesus has demonstrated already to us and asks us to reciprocate to him by following him by faith. That we no longer look to any other people to set our priorities, but we look to Jesus alone. We give him exclusive loyalty. Then there is this unbreakable unity that when God weaves together your life with Christ, it is inseparable. No man can separate what God does in salvation with Jesus Christ. There is a place where you cannot fail your way out of that relationship. It is completely woven together. Every aspect of your life woven with his, every aspect of his life, Lord willing, woven with ours. This is the the relationship God wants with us. There's a growing intimacy that as we come to know God, that we experience intimacy in a way that even supersedes all the desires of physical intimacy. 
Not that those things ever leave, but there's something better that God's pointing us to. Then we see this mutual vulnerability. What could be more vulnerable than Jesus on the cross, stripped of his clothes, laid bare before humankind, mocked, all so that he could welcome us. Matthew talks about how he came to us like a mother hen with her wings spread so that we, they could, he could gather us to himself. Vulnerability where we lay before him our sin completely as we are with no pretense because if there's anything less that we offer God, if we withhold anything, any sin in our lives, then we cheapen the grace that he's offered us through Christ. We cheapen what he did for us on the cross and so we become vulnerable before him. This is the kind of relationship God wants, a relationship of complete safety and security. See how marriage points us to the union that's made possible through Jesus Christ with God. So what? What do we do with our broken relationships? What, do I, what am I supposed to do with my marriage that's hurting? What am I supposed to do when I'm not sure how to love my wife better today? Let me just give you a few things. If you're a Christian and your marriage doesn't reflect these virtues, there's grace for you. You can repent to God and repent to one another and pursue union with one another as you pursue union with Christ. The church is here to help you. We are for you. We'll provide resources for you. We'll come alongside you. We'll pray with you. We'll lead you. We'll challenge you. We'll confess our own failures with you so that we can move that way together. If you're a Christian and you want to enjoy this kind of intimate relationship without the bond of marriage, can I just say, you are giving the world an inaccurate picture of God. It's not just about rules. It's about the picture your life is presenting to the world of who God really is. But you're not only giving the world an inaccurate picture of God. If you want to enjoy this kind of intimacy without the bond of marriage, you're giving your partner a counterfeit version of love. Because this is the kind of love that we learn from God. It's the perfect love. It's the love that provides this sort of environment. Anything less is counterfeit and will ultimately be found out. So if that's you, there's grace for you. Repent, turn away from that. Pursue union with God and union with one another through marriage. Or exit the relationship and pursue union with God because it's better. If you're a Christian and your experience of marriage has been less than ideal, there is grace and peace to be found in Jesus Christ. I love how Ray Ortland puts this. He says, if your heart is broken, so is God's. He is with you in your pain. And he is there for you with grace and peace. So don't let your broken marriage or your broken view of marriage break your view of God. If you aren't married, well, there's a chance that you might be married someday. But whether you're content in your singleness or not, whether you've chosen it or whether your singleness happened to you, 
let me remind you, marriage is not the ultimate goal. It's a signpost pointing us to God's desire to know us in a covenant relationship. In fact, the Bible also describes singleness as a gift to the work of God in the world. So just like your gender doesn't make you any more or less valuable to God, neither does your marital status. I love that we're doing the Homefront Conference in a couple of weeks. It'll be Saturday in Longview, Sunday right here in this room on the normal schedule on Sunday morning. But we're just going to have speakers and breakout sessions about marriage, about parenting, and about singleness. Because all of those are gifts to the work of God in the world. So I'd encourage you to check that out. Right on the signpost outside, speaking of signposts, is a QR code that you can scan. Aaron mentioned that earlier. You can scan that and sign up for it. So I would challenge you, take a step toward union with God and union with one another or towards intentional singleness and union with God by doing that. The point of marriage is to point us to union with Christ. The New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 5, I mentioned earlier, it goes on to say in verse 31 through 32, for this reason, it's quoting Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. See, God's pointing us to something bigger, something better. He's pointing us farther in the future. You remember how the introduction always points a good one to the end, to the conclusion? Revelation chapter 19 and 21, the very ends of your Bible, both describe Jesus returning to reign as the victorious king over all creation, and they describe God's remaking of the heavens and the earth. But the word picture used to describe this activity, guess what? It's a wedding. It's a wedding. God made marriage and sanctified it for our enjoyment, for sure, but also to point us to the kind of relationship he intends to have with us forever. A relationship of pure love, devotion, safety, security, vulnerability. This is our God. In Revelation, it's a wedding. It's the ceremony where believers are presented in union with Jesus for eternal life, but it's also the reception. It's the wedding feast to celebrate the inauguration of the new heavens and the new earth where we'll once again experience life with God as Adam did in Eden. And all this is possible because Jesus became the sacrificial intermediary of the covenant between God and And man, he gave his life so that we could have life and have it to the fullest, as his disciple John would say. God designed you for a relationship with him. He designed you for a relationship with people. And Jesus is the only way to truly enjoy relationships on earth and for eternity. So faith in Jesus, it's the call we make every week. Faith in Jesus is a back to the future invitation in this way. I don't know if you're Back to the Future fans, they'll throw back to the 80s. It's a way that we reclaim the life we were created for and a way that we begin to live the life by God's power that Jesus secures for us for eternity. Do you need that kind of life? It's available to you today. I want to lead you in prayer, and we're going to give you a chance to respond in our last couple of minutes today. Well, let's pray together. God, thank you for this truth 
and we were made for one another. God, help us become allies for someone else today. Maybe it's in a marriage relationship or a relationship that needs to be restored. Maybe it's a relationship where we need to come to you to find grace. But God, lead us today by your Holy Spirit. Give us a next step so that we can enjoy life to the fullest through the redemption that's available in Jesus Christ. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.